But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. It's good to see you this morning. On this, uh, we are in spring, right? Here in Madison? Yes? Even though there's five inches of snow predicted for tonight? This is spring, yes? Does this happen every spring? Okay. Well, there you go. We are, uh, Sam said, we're going we're gonna to take a, a little continue um, detouring away from our series on the Beatitudes just during Eastertide, uh, looking at a few of these conversations uh, that is, that is uh, recorded in the scriptures that Jesus had uh, with people after he bodily resurrected from the dead. And um, I, part, of the, part of the reason why I think this is important to do, um, first of all, this is the name of your church, Resurrection. <laughs> um, it was pretty important to remember and design a community of faith around the resurrection when this church was established. That's a good thing. But even more importantly, often the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, that is Easter, can sometimes be simply reduced to the other bookend to Christmas. Uh, the Jesus story is basically two main parts, his birth, his incarnation, and then his death and resurrection. And that proves, therefore, that Jesus is God. That is what sometimes we get out of celebrating Easter. Jesus simply proved he was the second person of the Trinity by rising from the dead. Now, it is true, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. <laughs> but there's, there's, there are far greater consequences to the resurrection of Jesus than simply that. Every one of us here who follows Jesus, who is in Christ, who has placed their hope and trust in Jesus, will also one day be resurrected with a resurrected, glorified body. But that doesn't make us God. Rather, Easter is the beginning of something new. It's the beginning of a season in the life of the church that's continued to this day and will continue until Jesus returns. As Paul says in his first letter to the church in Corinth, 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, in the Messiah, shall all be made alive. The resurrection didn't simply prove that Jesus was God. It was the beginning of God's reclamation project over all his cosmos, which has been defiled and corrupted because we as his image bearers rebelled and settled for giving our allegiance to sin and to lesser inanimate idols that hoodwinked us into thinking that things could actually be run better in this world and in this life than by God himself. And then subsequently enslaved us. And so Jesus' death and resurrection crushes sin and its deathly grip on us and then unleashes new life where there was death before. And that's why we can say that the resurrection changes absolutely everything. And more than that, more than simply changing things, again, it's actually beginning something brand new, something intended by our creator from the very beginning. And so I would offer it just makes sense to dwell here just a little longer and consider the wonder and also the implications of the resurrection of Easter. And so this morning we're going to start with this encounter Jesus has with Mary Magdalene. So will you pray with me one more time as we come to this passage? Heavenly Father, we ask now, as we engage this, your word, we might encounter the one who has words of eternal life. Father, we all come into this place this morning, different mindsets, different stages of life, different uh, uh, even levels of belief. Perhaps there's some even here this morning that were were we fully to be honest with one another, we would have to admit we, we still have doubts. We are still like some of the disciples that even at Jesus' commissioning in Matthew 28 still doubted even as they worshiped. Father, the reality is that none of us have it all together. We are all, frankly, a bigger mess than we even know, and certainly a bigger mess than we often let on. But at the end of the day, would you help us to see that when you see us in the midst of all of our complex complications, in the midst of our sin and brokenness, in the midst of all the ways we don't have it all together, when you see us there, your response is not to be aghast, not to cut and run, but you actually move towards us in redeeming, recreating, transforming love. Help us to see that and believe that anew and afresh this morning. Through this, your word, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, if you are here this morning and familiar with the various gospel writers' accounts of that first Easter morning, you are aware that there are actually some differences in how these accounts are told. 
In fact, if you were really biblically savvy, you would have realized that the first part of John 20 that we didn't read in this morning's scripture reading is also a part of John's resurrection account. And although I don't, I don't want to take too much time here, I don't want to make this part two of an apologetic for the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, I do want to, not, I do want to acknowledge that there are differences between these stories of how Jesus' resurrection is told among the various gospel writers. And that there have been critics who have tried to leverage these differences as support for even denying the legitimacy of any of these accounts at all. Among the differences that get attention are how many angels were actually at the tomb and which particular women actually went to the tomb. But quickly, I just want to say a couple of things before we get into this particular conversation. First of all, I just want to say we need not be afraid as Christians, as followers of Jesus, of questions and scrutiny of the Bible in general and the gospel narratives in particular. And I do believe that there have been some intellectually lazy ways for accounting of these differences at times by Christians. And far from helping affirming our faith, they simply express and communicate a posture of fear and defensiveness that our faith can easily be undermined. Now, though it surely is only by faith that we can enter into and have a relationship with the God of the Bible, our faith is not anti-reason. Secondly, I would say at the same time, I would humbly suggest that these differences are actually not as significant as critics would sometimes try to make them out to be. I am told that trial attorneys point out that witnesses to a crime, often because of their various perspectives on the scene of the crime, will not perfectly align as to some of the secondary and tertiary details of what actually happened. And we'll come back to that point in just a moment. But third, the first century requirements for recording events just did not require the same level of details that we require today to be considered legitimate and to be taken seriously. Today, it's expected that if you were to tell about an event, <laughs> to be considered accurate would require basically an iPhone camera video of what happened at the scene of the crime. And that actually from multiple camera angles at the scene of the crime. <laughs> but that was just not the expectations in the first century. And fourth, the writers of the first century would certainly be engaging in what is called the theologians' studies of hermeneutics call spotlighting. Quickly, spotlighting, spotlighting is when you focus on a particular character in your narrative, and not necessarily concerned about all the other details of an event. And so whether it was due to a short supply of writing material at the time, or simply because you had a particular point that you wanted to make, you would include only those details that helped support making your point. So for instance, if the other gospel writers say that Mary Magdalene was one of several women who came to the tomb, but John only mentions Mary Magdalene. It doesn't mean that John was 
denying that other women were there. His focus is on Mary Magdalene, as we will see in this text. This is spotlighting. And by the way, as a side note, in part of the passage that we didn't read in verse 2, even though the gospel writer John only mentions Mary Magdalene and spotlights her, he does quote her as saying, (laughs) they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. An allusion to the fact that there were other people other than Mary Magdalene there, even though John doesn't name them. But finally, I'd make the case that instead of being reason to dismiss the resurrection as untrue, the fact that there are some small differences in the narratives actually gives credence to the legitimacy of the resurrection. Again, think about a crime scene. If in court, four different witnesses testified and each witness told the exact same story with the exact same details, regarding the time, the temperature, the actions of the perpetrator, if everything was told exactly the same, (laughs) you'd actually be more likely to question their testimony rather than be further convinced of what happened. It would sound like they had gotten together and said, this is what we're going to say when we're put on the witness stand. Say this. And so that we have four separate accounts that obviously don't rely on one another, even with these slight variations, I would humbly make the case we have further reason to believe that something absolutely happened, namely the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so now that we have addressed that, let's seek to understand John's point in in spotlighting this conversation with Mary Magdalene. Here we find Mary at Jesus' tomb. Elsewhere in the other Gospels, we're told that she is there to anoint his body with embalming spices. Remember, Jesus was taken down on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. He was quickly buried, and her intent is to ensure that his body is properly prepared for burial. But as she arrives and observes that the body is now missing, John writes that she is overwhelmed with grief. John says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, it's not hard to imagine the basis of her weeping and her grief. Mary is not coming here expecting to see a resurrected, living Jesus. And it would have been tormenting enough for Mary to have just watched her Lord tortured and killed and executed. She's already filled with grief. But now as she comes and desires to give him a proper burial, she's even denied that. And then after encountering the angels, she turns and there stands a man who she thinks is a gardener though we are told that it is, in fact, Jesus. Now, I won't say much this week about why Mary didn't recognize Jesus at first. We're actually going to explore that a little bit more next week in a passage 
That includes a couple of disciples who actually engage with Jesus in a conversation, a pretty extended conversation, with the resurrected Jesus for some time before they finally recognize who he is. But for now, I simply want to note that this is Jesus' resurrected and glorified body, meaning something must be profoundly different, but not completely unlike the Jesus that Mary knew prior to his death and resurrection for the way that we see her respond in just a moment. Nevertheless, the irony is not lost on the gospel writer John from his perspective that she would think this is a gardener. John, the gospel writer, is, has already communicated to us throughout his gospel that he has Genesis 1 and 2 on his mind. You might recall how John starts. In the beginning was the word, a certain allusion back to Genesis 1. In the previous chapter of John, Pilate parades the arrested Jesus before the world and says, behold the man. Reading between the lines, it's not unlikely John would want us to see, like the first man being presented, the second man, the second Adam. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, on a Friday, the sixth day, John records Jesus' words, it is finished, or the work is done. Exactly what we were told about God's work at the first creation, also on the sixth day. And furthermore, Jesus' body laid resting in the tomb on the seventh day. And here on the first day of the new week, when Jesus' body rises from the dead, is the first day of the new creation breaking into the old. And a little later in this chapter, there'll be another creation narrative echo when Jesus breathes on his disciples. Both the Greek and the Hebrew word for breath is the same as spirit, as God breathed life into humanity at the very beginning. So Jesus breathes new life into this new humanity formed by and in the resurrected Christ. Therefore, it should not surprise us that John would want to make this note, this detail, <laughs> that Mary believes she's encountering a gardener, just like the first Adam. And so she asks him if he knows where Jesus' body might be, talking to Jesus. And despite Jesus' reminder over and over to his disciples that he must be killed, that he would rise again, it's still not in Mary's paradigm that Jesus would bodily rise again. That when she sees the empty tomb, it's not because his body was taken away, but because he is alive again. But here we see Jesus' profound compassion to Mary. Because in spite of Mary's slowness to believe, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't bring up everything he's already said and announced previously in his teaching. I'm going to have to die. I will rise again on the third day. He doesn't do that. He doesn't berate her. He isn't put off by her lack of faith. 
meeting her right where she is, he simply speaks one tender word. Her name. Mary. Mary. No theological argument. No speech. No supplemental miracle. Simply her name. And that's when she realizes this is her Lord. This is Jesus. For as Jesus has already told us in John's gospel, as the good shepherd, he knows his sheep by name and they hear his voice. Mary is hearing her shepherd's voice. And Mary now, who must be wiping tears away, responds and apparently grabs hold of Jesus and cries out in that moment, Rabboni, or my beloved teacher. And then Jesus responds with what sounds a little crude and peculiar, if not harsh. He says, Mary, don't touch me. Don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father. And here we might ask, Jesus, what's the big deal? What's the big deal with Mary grabbing hold of you at this point? I mean, cut her a little slack. She thought you were dead and gone. That she wants to touch and embrace the one that she so loved and respected and thought she had lost seems pretty reasonable to me. Why can't she touch you? Well, it can't be that there's something intrinsically wrong with touching him, for later Jesus will invite Thomas to touch him to be proved that he has risen bodily from the dead. Rather, Jesus is perceiving something about Mary's heart. It's in essence as if Jesus is saying, Mary, you're trying to cling and hold on to and keep the old me. Mary, merely satisfied that I'm no longer dead, you're not yet comprehending the significance of what I have just accomplished and what I am going to continue to accomplish through you and others of my followers. As, Jesus, as, as John, excuse me, is trying to make the point that this is new creation, breaking into the old, something that cosmic in scope is occurring right before Mary right before our eyes, and Jesus does not want Mary, nor does he want us to miss it. You see, this new creation work is going to continue to penetrate the old world and the old ways as Jesus will ascend to his Father, take all authority to himself, and then commission his apostles out by giving them his Holy Spirit. And so to cling to Jesus at this point would be to stay stuck in the past and fail to recognize this new reordering of the world under the reign of Jesus by his Holy Spirit through his people. Mary, don't cling to me. And so Jesus does something next that actually is probably the most amazing thing in this passage. Because even though Mary was slow to believe, Jesus tells her, don't cling to me, but instead, go and tell my brothers what you have witnessed. Go and tell my brothers. Again, not berating her. 
like commissioning her. He's giving her the task of proclaiming and heralding something new is now happening. He's commissioning her to participate in his mission. Now that I have risen and I'm ascending to the Father, Mary, there's work to be done. I'm making you one who will testify on my behalf what I am doing as a result of my resurrection. Now, Mary certainly had every reason to stay clinging to Jesus. You can imagine a thousand thoughts Mary might have had. Jesus, can I just stay here for a little bit? Can I just be here with you? This feels safe right now. And and furthermore, after all, me? Really? I'm just one person, and why would anybody believe me after all? They'll think my message is a cruel joke. It won't connect coming from me. They won't take me seriously. Jesus, don't you remember you cast out seven demons from me. They'll now think I have an eighth. Jesus, they won't hear my testimony. And nevertheless, in spite of all that potential resistance, Jesus says, don't cling to me, but go. Go, Mary. And so what about us? Is it possible that there are ways, even now, that you and I still Cling to Jesus out of safety and comfort and avoid our commission to go. For a lot of us, coming here is easy. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. We, come, we, we get up to be fed, to come and worship, to fellowship, all good and necessary. And as we've said before, we've noted before, this is a tough cultural context to believe that there's much more to this life than simply what you can see and touch. We need this community of faith. But, but, for those of us who have heard Jesus' call, for those of us who have encountered the risen Savior, have been embraced by him, have been called by name by him, Jesus would say, You can't stay here forever. (laughs) I want you to be my heralds of what I am doing now in this world. Jesus never calls anyone to himself without also turning around and commissioning them back into the world. And from this passage, we see that in a lot of ways, mission and evangelism is simply nothing more than telling your story of how you have witnessed and experienced Jesus' resurrection power and transformation in your life. And though, no, we are not all called to be full-time evangelists in ministry, yet we are called at all times to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. The hope that we talked about last week because of the resurrection. So here's the question. When you tell that story, 
for the reason for the hope that is in you. If you are asked, will people around you agree that, yes, (laughs) that makes sense. There's something different. I have seen a different type of hope in you. Because after all, that's the heralding that Jesus has called us to do. So my friends, do you believe the resurrection? Do you believe that there is a living hope as we talked about last week? Do you believe that the new Adam, the new gardener, has started something cosmic in scope, that he is recreating, that he is remaking all things? Theologian N.T. Wright says, as the new Adam in the garden, Jesus, he is charged with bringing the chaos of God's creation into new order, into flower, into fruitfulness. In fact, he has come to uproot the thorns and thistles and replace them with blossoms and harvests. Certainly an echo of the hymn writer Isaac Watts words that he penned for Christmas time. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. That's the living hope of the resurrection that the new Adam has set forth and initiated that is breaking in to the brokenness of this world and in the brokenness of our own lives. Take that hope with you this week into the world, into Madison, into your places of work and play, and be that hope in the midst of a dying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again celebrate this event, this the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth.